This is exactly right. Today's episode is brought to you by The Fugitive, only on Quibi. Kiefer Sutherland from 24 and Boyd Holbrook of Narco star in this edge-of-your-seat crime thriller series that packs a somatic punch. The story follows family man Mike Farrow as he attempts to evade detective Clay Bryce. After being wrongfully accused of an L.A. subway bombing, Mike must prove his innocence by tracking down the real culprit before he runs out of time in this modern take on the classic action film. Download Quibi and watch The Fugitive streaming now. On The Murder Squad, we discuss details of crimes that are often violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Billy Jensen. I'm Paul Holes. This is The Murder Squad. Black transgender women are being murdered in America. It's been an issue in the LGBTQ community for decades. But this year, over 20 transgender people have been murdered so far. A number that is already dangerously close to the total for all of last year. And seven have been killed since June alone. We're going to look at some of the problems the media causes when covering these cases. The way the communities feel law enforcement handles the cases. And specifically, at how one black transgender woman's murder sparked a day of remembrance despite the fact that over 20 years later, her murder has never been caught. Our job? To find Rita Hester's killer. This is the Murder Squad. So how's it going, Billy? It's going all right, Paul. Just looking at some updates, we have another update out of Fort Hood. You know, when we updated the Vanessa Guillen case, we talked about the deaths occurring around and on Fort Hood, Texas. And on July 17th, there was another. 26-year-old Private Mayor Morta was found unresponsive near Stillhouse Hollow Lake. Now, the lake is about 15 miles from Fort Hood. As of now, law enforcement has not declared the manner of death or whether this case is a homicide, but there is clearly something going on at Fort Hood that needs to be examined. And, you know, we are still getting so many uh, responses from veterans and people that are still active in the military who have um, talked about how the military continually sweeps things under the rug. And um, it's, it's definitely something that we need to look at and keep on looking at and keep on digging into. Yeah, you know, when you have a cluster like what's going on out there, that just is suspicious as hell. It it needs to be dug into. Yeah. But for now, let's go to Boston. Rita Hester was a black transgender woman, and by all accounts, she was bubbly, supportive, and larger than life. She grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, and moved to Boston to find a community more accepting of herself. And she found that community in Boston. She was very much involved in the rock music scene in the area. She also performed with her long braided hair at drag shows, preferring Whitney Houston songs. On the morning of November 28, 1998, 34-year-old Rita had been with her best friend, Brenda Wynn. The two played racquetball and had made plans to watch figure skating the next day. Rita left Brenda's at noon. At 4 p.m., Rita called another friend to say she was going to the Silhouette Lounge to ask the friend to come along. The bar was just around the corner from her Parkvale Avenue apartment in the Alston neighborhood. Rita had actually been there the previous night. Yeah, no, I actually lived in this neighborhood five years earlier. And Parkvale was one of those streets where the house parties would take place. So I remember it was 24 Parkvale. It was 17 Reedsdale. There were always these things that you knew that there were going to be parties there. So... This neighborhood is very much a uh, a lot of college kids that go to BU, especially around that time period. It was, uh, um, you know, the rents were pretty cheap and it was a lot of people that were living. You know, if you had a two bedroom apartment, you might have six people or seven people living in there. Okay. Well, what would you say it was a high crime area or was it mostly just, you know, kids doing kids stuff? Kids doing kids stuff, really not a high crime area. Uh you know, the police would certainly come pretty quick if there was a party that, that people were being too loud at. But uh, it was it was very much just sort of, you know, kids being kids. Yeah. Okay. All right. 
So the friend was supposed to meet up with Rita around 7 p.m. at her apartment. But 48 minutes earlier, a 911 call was placed. At 6.12 p.m., law enforcement received a call about a fight inside Rita's apartment. It took seven minutes for officers to be dispatched. And when they entered her apartment, Rita was still alive. She was on the floor and had been stabbed multiple times. Somehow, Rita managed to cling to life until the authorities arrived. The offender had stabbed Rita 20 times in the chest. And between the call at 6.12 to the time she reached Beth Israel Hospital, over an hour had gone by. Rita passed away at the hospital from cardiac arrest due to her injuries. When law enforcement looked at the scene, they saw no forced entry. And according to a neighbor, the back door was unlocked. Nothing was missing or stolen, and they had no real clue about who killed Rita. So, Paul, taking a look at this crime scene, the first thing that we're looking at here are the stab wounds, 20 stab wounds to the chest. Yeah. Yeah, you know, without the photos to to be able to see the distribution of the stab wounds, the fact that she lived for as long as she did and was stabbed 20 times in the chest, that tells me I don't have a tight cluster of 20 stab wounds right into the heart. But there's just no way she would have survived for as long as she did. It almost sounds more like these stab wounds were potentially distributed throughout the chest. And oftentimes you see that when the victim is still struggling while the offender is stabbing and therefore she's moving relative to the stabs. And so now you have a wider distribution of of stab wounds and it doesn't appear that those stab wounds ended up going after those immediately fatal areas or penetrated the immediately fatal area, such as the heart, the aorta It was probably more to the side as she's you know, struggling with her offender. Now, describe to us the difference between processing a scene with a live victim versus a dead body. Right. Well, this is where you you, you run into a lot of complexities, because obviously when uh, she is found alive, the top priority is the life-saving measures that need to take place. And so whether it be uh, patrol officers or whether it be paramedics, They're now starting to make sure they do what they can in order to preserve her life. And they don't care anything about preserving the crime scene, and nor should they, uh, preserving physical evidence. And oftentimes, when you have somebody, let's say that their Rita's may have been laying, let's say, in, in the family room on the floor, they're now pushing furniture out of the way so they can have more space in order to be able to do life saving measures. Um, If there's a knife near Rita, that knife often is going to be picked up and moved out of the way. So the 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 life saving measures being taken early on in a crime scene like this can completely alter the crime scene. And it also can destroy physical evidence. And that's just something that we run into all the time versus walking into a crime scene where there is an obvious dead body. Law enforcement is trained and advises paramedics if they just need that declaration of death, do not disturb anything. You see obvious death, you verify death, and you back out, you close the scene down. And so there, the the aspects of the crime scene are preserved as well as the physical evidence. You get more to be able to use as you investigate the case. And it could be something as, as you know, you talk about a knife, which would be the most blatant example, but even trying to get out the door, you know, you're going to touch the door handle. You're not going to be like, you know, oh, wait, don't touch the door handle, that kind of thing. Right. And and oftentimes, it, and this is where, you know, crime scene investigators, they absolutely, one of the first things they need to do when they arrive at the crime scene is find out what alterations have occurred to that scene. Who found the body? What did they do? What did law enforcement do when they entered the scene? What did the paramedics do? And they record that. And so those actions have to be taken into account. But you typically do see evidence like uh, shoe prints that will be trampled as people go in and out of the crime scene to be able to preserve yeah, you know, the, the victim's life uh, fingerprints that were left behind by the offender that are now destroyed because somebody else has now grabbed that door handle, like you said. Yeah. 
you know, the amount of time it took to respond, seven minutes is actually fairly decent. But the hospital, I'm not quite sure why they chose Beth Israel instead of St. Elizabeth, which so is right down the street. They they must have had some sort of reason for that, because Beth Israel, 10 miles in the middle of, you know, Boston traffic and the, the way those Boston roads are can be a, a real pain in the ass going from Austin to there. I'm not sure about that, though. Is is it possible? Because I saw it in my jurisdiction is that, you know, there where we would have a lot of uh, uh, gang related shootings on the West End, the hospital that was nearest wasn't anywhere near as capable to deal with the trauma mm-hmm. as another hospital that was further away. And we actually saw better survival, even though it took longer to get the victims to the other hospital because those docs knew what they were doing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, you want to go to a trauma center. Uh, that's what they usually call it. Uh, yeah. We used to live uh, when I grew up. It, it was interesting. I, I was a kid that used to bang my head all the time and, and get bloody stitches and things. And we used to go to Nassau County Medical Center on Long Island, which was the trauma center. Now, that was right next to the Nassau County Jail. And literally, I remember like me being there with my head busted open waiting and a guy and like four prisoners are being walked with cuffs. And one of the guys recognized my dad (laughs) from the neighborhood and was just like, hey, I remember the guy's name was Strawberry. That was his nickname. And after a while, my dad was like, yeah, we're not going to that trauma. If you just have a cut like that or something where you just need a few stitches, we're going to go to the hospital in Mineola. We're not going to go to that hospital. But you're right, though. And those trauma centers usually are the ones that have the helipad and have the, you know, that that are suited for um, the, the big trauma. Well, all that head trauma that you experienced as a youth really explains a lot of things to me right now, Billy. I, you, you know what? <laughs> I went from I, there was a time in, in a period of three days. I was back there twice and my dad was really worried, like Child Protective Services were going to take me away because yeah. I just I was just a clumsy kid. What can you do? What can you do? <laughs> anyway, so neighbors told Rita's family that they saw two white men leaving her apartment shortly before the 911 call. And at first made friends and family wonder about Rita's boyfriend. The two had been seeing each other off and on for years, but her family and friends could only remember his first name, which is Bobby. He was a white guy with blonde hair. Now, Brenda told NBC News that Bobby was Rita's, quote, main guy, but she was also seeing some other men. Rita never gave her best friend too many details about the relationship. Bobby didn't really go to places with Rita. And after her murder... Nobody could find Bobby. Hmm. So obviously, you know, whenever we see a murder, you're going to go to the people that are closest to them. Um, The idea that there were two men leaving is different. But, you know, the boyfriend is always going to be a somebody that you want to talk to, not necessarily a person of interest. Right. You, you initially have to start because that boyfriend most certainly has knowledge about Rita that could potentially lead to solving the case. But you also have to evaluate the boyfriend as a potential uh, person who was involved in her homicide. But there was another lead. Uh, the night before Rita's murder, she was with friends at the Silhouette Lounge, where she was supposed to return the night she was killed. On November 27th, the night before she was killed, Rita was hanging around two foreign men at the bar. One friend, who didn't want to be named for safety reasons, said the men were Australian, but her best friend Brenda recalled that they were Brazilian. Wherever they were from, the friend who didn't want to be named said she got a bad vibe off of them, a vibe she conveyed to police through email and phone conversations with the Boston Police Department. So let me tell you something about this. I've been to the Silhouette Lounge. Uh, I've been to the, uh, we're also going to talk about the Model Cafe, which we call the Model Cafe. It's very... This is not an area where tourists would go. This is not like we're in New York City. This isn't even really like we're in uh, around Faneuil Hall in Boston. Uh, You need a reason to go to Alston, especially back in 1998. It wasn't like in your travel guide to go hey go and and this wasn't also when you know sort of cool neighborhood dive bars were a thing back then they weren't so for somebody to be there you know boston did have i I will say this having gone to boston university there was a very large uh international population there was a lot of people that went there from other uh from other countries 
they very well could have had and this is this is very important that i want people to to think about they could have had friends coming in uh staying with them and that sort of thing but it's not really the kind of place that somebody would there weren't really even that many hotels around there you know it's not really some place there was no airbnb back then it's not some place that 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 a somebody would just ramble into there was a reason why uh somebody would be there and it was because they knew somebody from the neighborhood okay so so some some sort of local connection absolutely okay rita has also gotten into an altercation a few weeks before her murder before taking a trip to greece she had gone out to the model cafe is that model or model we i think it's supposed to be model but we would call it the model as if we were like you called target target okay yeah seriously so. how do you want me to say it then say say model model okay you don't have to be a hipster this, this is pre-hipster this is even before pre-hipster but yeah got it before taking a trip to greece she had gone out to the model cafe that night she punched someone in the face all of her friends agreed it was something rita would have done to protect a friend yeah, and Rita, by all accounts, and I've read so much about Rita, um, especially having been when I went back to be the uh, the editor of the the alternative newspaper there in Boston and looked into this case. Uh, by all accounts, she she was just such a a cool person, and um, you know, this is one of those things where it looks like she was uh, she was protecting a friend, and this happened. But, um, uh, you know, the amount of by looking at, at the way that the police were um, put, well, put it to you this way. Let's start with here. In when I got to Boston in 2005, I was very excited to be working at a newspaper in a, in a large city. And I was running a newspaper in a large city. I was like, all right, I have all these new cases. I had just come from Long Island. I had worked a bunch of Long Island uh, unsolved murder cases. Now I'm here in Boston. Let me look at these unsolved murder cases in Boston. And I start looking at them. And I looked at like the Karina Holmer case and and Molly Bish, uh, which is a little bit outside of Boston. And then I, I certainly saw Rita's case. And what I kept on seeing over and over again was that the police department was not very good and as i started opening up you know peeling back the layers of the onion i saw how the police department wasn't only not clearing their murders they were arresting people and then um then being sued because uh because they were getting the wrong arrest they were getting the wrong uh, um, uh convictions and, and getting arresting the wrong people so I actually had uh, worked on a story with with one of our writers and we called it and put it on the on the cover. It was called the worst homicide squad in America because it was them versus San Francisco in terms of who had some of the worst uh, clearance rates. But they also had this added thing of how many millions of dollars that they were that they were um, giving away because of their uh, their wrongful arrests and wrongful um, prosecution. So. You know, it was not a good situation to be in if you were a a murder victim in Boston at this time, um, even more so if you were a transgender woman. Yeah. So in Rita's case, evaluating the suspect pool, most certainly victimology is huge and understanding that Rita had multiple uh men in her life it also appears that she had at least an altercation on in one occasion provides some investigative leads but we also know that merely being transgender can cause somebody to become a victim just merely being a transgender woman can cause somebody to be a victim this is a hate crime and we know that there are individuals out there that will kill the Boston Police Department doesn't consider this a cold case, but it remains unsolved with very little movement. Rita's case wasn't the first transgender murder in Boston. Rita and the community knew about another case from the area that was actually pretty recent to that crime. In Brookline, Massachusetts, 23-year-old Chanel had lost her job at 9X in the sales department due to transphobia after weeks of harassment. 9X was a uh, the Yellow Pages. 
She was unable to find work and she turned to sex work, mostly out of a club called Playland. And there she met a man named William Palmer. The two met on November 19th, 1995. And according to reports, Chanel found Palmer somewhat appealing and they were going to hang out and it wasn't going to be a business transaction. They were just they were just going to hang out. The two first went to Chanel's apartment to take drugs. They took crack cocaine and then around 3 or 3.30 a.m. they went to Palmer's apartment. Around 5 a.m., Palmer's roommates heard a struggle. An unknown voice was shouting supposedly religious phrases, and Palmer was trying to quiet that person down. The roommates continued to hear screams and pounding on the wall. One described the pounding to be so intense, they thought the wall would break. Then the unknown voice was muffled, and it was quiet. The roommate knocked on the door to ask Palmer if he was all right. And his response, while sort of blocking the view of the room, he said, quote, I've got a crazy bitch in here, but I've got it under control, end quote. Then the roommates tried to go back to sleep. Now, four hours later, Palmer told his roommates that they had a problem. He called his lawyer, who couldn't see him until that afternoon. It was only after that meeting that his attorney would call law enforcement and tell them they would find a dead body at his apartment. Police arrived and discovered Chanel murdered inside. She had been beaten and strangled. The coroner said she had bruised face and lips. The brain was badly swollen. The neck muscles were bruised and there was hemorrhaging in the eyes. And while the evidence against Palmer was damning, his attorney argued trans panic. A bullshit defense, but one he was allowed to make. His attorney said it was the shock of finding out that Chanel was trans that drove him to kill. But this was a bullshit claim on top of another bullshit claim. Because the prosecution brought in six other transgender women to testify about their encounters with Palmer. Still, the LGBTQ community saw the writing on the wall. Rita Hester, our victim from the top of the episode, was quoted in a local newspaper saying, I'm afraid of what will happen if Palmer gets off lightly. It'll just give people a message that it's okay to do this. This is a message we cannot afford to send. And how chilling are those words? Because Palmer did get off lightly. His trial concluded with a two-year prison sentence for assault and battery. Just two years. Not murder, not manslaughter. Two years for assault and battery. What was, yeah, what was the, uh, the argument there? I'm not getting that at all. There's a dead body in his apartment. What was, what, Polly, do you, do you know what they... Um, was it a defense, like a self-defense argument? Um, no, the defense was transphobia. The defense was he was shocked to find out that Chanel Pickett was a transgender woman. And because of that shock, he killed her. And the jury and the trial was in 1997. And the jury found that that was okay to kill someone. Wow. So this is obviously a hate crime. Even his defense uh, of trans panic is a hate crime, but he was able to use that because federally the LGBTQ community was not protected and crimes against them were not considered part of uh, were not considered hate crimes until 2009. Yeah, you know, and, and the crazy thing is just think about that case with Palmer in which let's say he is. In a room with a, uh, a a woman and she ends up saying no because he makes sexual advances against her and then he goes off on her and kills her. He would be prosecuted very differently than under this situation where he is now in a room and is arguing. I found out I was with transgender and that touched me off and that's why I killed that person. I don't see how you can justify treating those two victims differently in the yeah. way that they did in the Palmer case. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, you know, even in 1997, in we're talking about Boston, it's it's considered one of the this is a uh, white perpetrator, a black victim. It's considered um, Boston is definitely one of the more racially divided cities uh, in the country. And 
also the way that that um that the media was dealing with transgender women back then even the uh the the lgbtq newspaper which is called bay windows even they were uh, uh were misidentifying people and um it was it was what was happening at the time and even even a paper like that we're not just talking about like the herald yeah yeah i i'm just having a hard time of you know being convicted of assault and battery when the the injuries obviously were lethal even yeah. even in a moment of rage you're still committing a murder yeah. you know there may not be malice a forethought it may not be first degree but there is still murder minimally there's a manslaughter component here so assault and battery somebody dropped the ball on the prosecution side there Ab- absolutely so Chanel's case did not see justice served, but she wasn't even the most recent victim in the Boston area before Rita's murder. Do you know what you deserve right now? What you deserve is gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door, starting at just $22. $22. You can take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. You know, for decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a traditional salon. But Madison Reed is game-changing. The color is crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones to create over 55 shades. And if you're thinking, uh, how do I match my color? Don't worry. Madison Reed gives you the tools you need so you can color with confidence. And I actually took the test and they said I should have uh, sort of a, a, a little bit of a copper sheen, I believe, to my hair, but I haven't used it yet. But my daughter has. And it was super easy, super easy to take the test. They sent her all the things she needed to dye her hair. And within, what was it, 30 minutes or something, she had great looking hair. So find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And our listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code MURDERSQUAD. That's code MURDERSQUAD at madison-reed.com. We're trying to safely enjoy summer. My trainer tells me that the two most important things for your health are your digestion system and your sleep. And having good sleep is a is an immunity booster and it helps with energy and recovery. You know, a survey shows that compared to average sleepers, sleep number bed owners like myself enjoy almost an hour's more of sleep per night. Do you think you're an average sleeper? I think I am. I sleep. I sleep fairly. I, I sleep very, very well with with this bed. And you know, I have my sleep number bed in Phoenix. I don't have it in Los Angeles, and I feel the difference when I'm in LA. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, the sleep IQ technology inside the bed it tr- can track how you're sleeping and gives you personal insights and says maybe you want to like raise this up a little bit or maybe you want to uh, make it harder or softer. You know, and aside from owning a sleep number bed, some other tips for a great night's sleep include using the right kinds of ambient noise, which I use. I use the Spotify air conditioner sound, but I also have my air conditioner going. It's very weird and meta in my apartment. Not drinking caffeine past 3 p.m., which I don't drink caffeine. Keeping your bedroom at a cool temperature, which I love to do, 66 degrees, and creating a before bed routine to help calm your mind. So... Uh, you know, my sleep score, uh, my sleep number is 55. Sometimes I drop it to 45, though, just depending how I'm feeling. And my favorite bed features, I got the bed that you can raise the the the, uh, the feet up a little bit, which is good for me because I'm so tall. And, you know, the blood takes a while to get down there, so it helps out a little bit. And, you know, my sleep during the, uh, the quarantine has been, especially as I was spending so much time where I really got to appreciate my sleep number bed in Phoenix, um, 
was was excellent. Yeah. And I I mean, you, you sleep during the day, right? At least there's a lot of people who think that you sleep during the day and are up all night. That is true. Yes. <laughs> I have been known to. Yes. And I got great blackout curtains in my uh, in, in the place in Phoenix, too. So, yes, there is a lot of sleeping during the day. <laughs> so proven quality sleep is life changing sleep with the sleep number 360 smart bed. And now for a limited time, save up to $500 on select smart beds. Shop your way at a Sleep Number store online at sleepnumber.com slash squad or by chat. Are you fascinated and terrified by cases of missing people? Are you also looking for a new true crime comedy podcast? To take your minds off things. If so, we are super excited to tell you about Obsessed With Disappeared, a brand new true crime comedy podcast from the people who make the hilarious true crime obsessed podcast. Obsessed With Disappeared is hosted by TCO's Patrick Hines and his best friend of 20 years, Broadway diva Ellen Marsh. Yes, and I can attest Patrick Hines gives probably the best hugs in all of true crime uh going in order from season one episode one the podcast recaps episodes of everyone's favorite true crime show ids disappeared each episode of the podcast is packed with humor sass heart and two decades worth of just the shadiest dirt patrick and ellen have on each other so if you're serious about true crime and you also like to laugh, you're going to love Obsessed With Disappeared. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. On September 11th, 1998, which is two months earlier, Monique Thomas's body was discovered in her apartment. She was next to her bed under a pile of clothing. Her hands and feet were bound with an electrical cord, and she had been asphyxiated. There was a large kitchen knife on the bed and law enforcement found fingerprints and DNA from a blood stain on Monique's bed. Inside the apartment, items were missing, including three rings that Monique regularly wore along with her credit cards and her car was not at her residence. Now, Paul, you're looking at this scene. Now you walk into a, uh, a crime scene where a victim um, uh, hands and feet are tied um, she's been uh, strangled. There's a knife there and you also have blood, but you also have a lot of things missing. So what are you looking at now? Are you looking at, at both uh, um, personal and robbery? Are you veering more towards robbery? Where are you going with this? You know, with what was done to her, you know, she, she her hands and feet were bound, asphyxiated. Uh, it looks sounds like she was stabbed. That's that's the uh, cause of death, though. We don't have any information as to uh, the number of stab wounds, etc. You know, it appears that the offender is interacting with her and is expressing emotions towards whatever is in his mind about her now she does have some minor items missing three rings which you know i start questioning these three rings that she regularly wore are those souvenirs do we have a fantasy motivated killer but the fact that credit cards are also taken tends to indicate that there's a monetary component to this so the theft aspect may be secondary you know with what i'm reading into what the offender did to to her sounds like that was more his interest more his goal and that secondarily he took advantage of her now being dead by grabbing a few of the rings and a few of the credit cards now with law enforcement noting the stolen items they put out an alert for monique's belongings Two weeks later, a man was seen driving Monique's car in Manchester, New Hampshire. The man, George Stallings, had the keys to Monique's car in her apartment. He was arrested. When they dug deeper into Stallings, they discovered he had been using Monique's credit cards and bank account. A friend of Stallings came forward and said he'd confessed to strangling a person and leaving them under a pile of clothes. Then his DNA and fingerprints came back as a match to those at the crime scene. Unlike William Palmer, George Stallings didn't go to trial. On June 6, 2000, Stallings pleaded guilty to Monique's murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. At his latest parole hearing in September 2018, he claimed he had only meant to rob Monique. Yeah, and he wasn't granted parole. But you're looking at these two cases um, 
which, 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 you know, we've got Chanel, we've got Monique. Why are these cases different? I, we were looking, trying to find a picture of Stallings. Um, his inmate lookup has no photo or no race or ethnicity listed, but we do know that Palmer was white. So, uh, we know that a, a white guy killed a black transgender woman and murdered her and got two years and stallings we're not sure if he was black or white but um he's got life in prison with the possibility of parole yeah you know and 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 you hope that the justice system isn't so black and white so to speak but unfortunately you know, we've seen examples where things like this happen. Well, and I have a question with that. Do we think that part of it may have been because they could prove that he had used her bank accounts and credit card statements? So it was then, a, even though it seems to be in presents as a very personal murder, they were able to say that it was during the commission of a crime because of the robbery. And that's why. And that'd be a robbery under special circumstances kind of thing. Yeah, uh, it's still so. I mean, that's that's inc- I mean, possibly, but um, that's really, really reaching for me. I mean, you have a dead woman in your apartment. No, uh, I agree. You know, I, you know what I mean? But it's just like, yeah, it's yeah. just the only I, mean, maybe, I don't want I don't want I don't want to get into a, 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 um, a racist judges. <laughs> You know, mindset, if that's what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, and, and that it looked like Stallings actually pleaded guilty, you know, so he's he's being advised by his attorney. You know, they've got a good case against you um, in Chanel's case. This this went this was a jury conviction, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The jury had in Chanel's case had to be given the option. To find to find a verdict on assault and battery. Uh, so there may be part of the difference there is now, you know, what was presented in front of the jury to substantiate the charges of of murder or of manslaughter um, versus assault battery. It, it almost it almost sounds like that jury was given the option to find guilt to, to assault and battery and to acquit on murder and or manslaughter. So media often misgenders or dead names transgender victims. Even to find details on Monique's case, a solved case, we had to use a different name for Monique in our searches. In Rita's case, when her death was first reported, she was listed as John Doe. And the media still referred to her as him, even though her family called her Rita. Unfortunately, this hasn't completely changed. Oftentimes, especially if the victim's identity is unknown, the report lists the person by their anatomy, and it may not be the way the community or even their families know them. And this is not only hugely offensive and wrong, but it really hampers investigations. And that's one of the reasons why orgs like the Transdo Task Force are such an important resource. It was created to research cold cases in which the subject may have been transgender or gender variant. And it has an interactive map showing trans does from around the country, giving information about each case. These issues are one of the reasons Gwendolyn Smith became invested in Rita Hester's case. It inspired her to first start a website, Remembering Our Dead. The project allowed the LGBTQ community to report on those from their community with the respect and dignity they deserve and are entitled to. A year after Rita Hester's death, Smith founded the Transgender Day of Remembrance in honor of Rita. It's held on November 20th of each year. But with the growing number of cases this year alone, we couldn't wait until November 20th. On June 9th, Raya Milton was shot several times in Liberty Falls, Ohio in June. The day before, the remains of Dominique Remy Fells were found in Philadelphia. Both cases saw their respective law enforcements misgender and deadname them. Now, these two cases occurred under different circumstances. Raya was murdered during a robbery and two people have been arrested. Dominique's remains were located floating in the water at Bartram's Garden Dock and Community Boathouse. She had been stabbed multiple times and her legs were severed. The suspected murderer is named... Actinatin Jones. 
The police have an arrest warrant for him, but do not believe he's in the city of Philadelphia. And as of this recording, he's not been located. Law enforcement is asking for the public's help in locating him and information on Dominique's murder. And we will have information about him up on our website. On June 30th, 22-year-old Mercy Mack was shot in the parking lot of an apartment building in Dallas. No suspect has been identified. There is also 17-year-old Brayla Stone from North Little Rock, Arkansas. Brayla's body was discovered inside a vehicle on a walking path in Sherwood, Arkansas on June 25th. Law enforcement hasn't released a cause of death, but they do consider it a homicide. Yeah, and with Brayla Stone's case, a person that a person posted something online claiming that he killed her. And there was a some people took screen captures of a deleted video and it showed a pile of hundred dollar bills and it said 5K in red text. And in the comments, the poster then said zipped him for 5K and that it was money well spent. We're not sure if that was uh, related to it or not, but they're definitely looking into that. Almost as if that person is indicating that they either hired somebody for 5K to kill Brayla or they themselves earned 5K to kill Brayla. Yeah. If they said if they said 5K well spent, it sounds like they were the ones that spent the money, uh, yeah. you know, but it was someone called t- um, the the name was Tappan Season, T-A-P-N-S-E-A-S-O-N. Uh, and they kind of laid out all of these $100 bills and, and $20 bills and um, said 5K with a little like kind of a, a smiley face emoji with uh, with with jazz hands kind of thing, yeah. which is, um, you know, whenever you see something like that, you you got to check it out. You got to check it out. I mean, most certainly could be just somebody who's wanting to get some attention and has no association with the case whatsoever, or it could be the actual killer. On July 1st, 32-year-old Shaky Peters was slain in Amite City, Louisiana. On July 3rd, 27-year-old Bree Black was found shot in Papano Beach, Florida. There isn't much to go on in the media for either case, although law enforcement has said they have a person of interest for Shaky's case. There is another case out of Louisiana, but it hasn't been ruled a homicide. Over the July 4th weekend, the body of Drea McCarty was discovered in Baton Rouge, Law enforcement has released no details on the case. After the deaths of Drea and Shaky, the organization, Louisiana Trans Advocates, stated that local and state leaders must speak out against these killings, against the ongoing systemic devaluation of trans people that pervades our media and politics, and against the institutional racism that places almost all of this burden on trans women of color. As we mourn the loss of Shaky Andrea, we must double down our efforts to ensure that all trans people across the state have access to safety. That makes seven black transgender murders in less than a month in America. Think about that. Seven. Which brings us to our weekly assignment. We need to find Actiatin Jones. We need to find the killer Bree Black and Mercy Mack. And while we're looking at them, too, I know that local newsrooms are hurting with layoffs, but we need to bug them. There was very little that we could find out about these cases. We need to get loud. Ask your local newsrooms, your local newspapers, the local television stations, ask them on social media why they aren't digging deeper into these cases. And we also want you to visit the Transdo Task Force. Citizen detectives have had some of the best results identifying Doe cases. We want you to see if you could find some of their identities. And from the case at the top of the show, we need to find Rita Hester's killer. Nearly 22 years is too long to wait for justice. Transgender Remembrance Day was created in her memory. Just think of the impact it would have in the press if a suspect could be identified. So as far for the rules, now these are cases... With Rita's case, there's going to be a lot of digging for back then. Um, if anybody remembers, you know, I, I think some of the uh, the best leads, obviously, are this uh, this sort of on again, off again boyfriend that she had, as well as these two men that she might have met 
uh, at the silhouette that people got bad vibes out of. Uh, and there was also two white men that were seen leaving the apartment. May have been Australian, may have been Brazilian, um, anything along those lines. So anybody that was living or knew people in Alston uh, from that from that time period, anybody that remembers. And that was the thing with Alston. You know, people would just show up at parties. Hey, this is my friend. He's from Australia. Okay, okay. It's that sort of thing. It's that kind of digging that's going to take it. Uh, but with these these uh, more recent cases, um, finding the killer of Bree Black, finding the killer of Mercy Mac, there's going to be, uh, we know a lot of citizen detectives are going to be digging into social media profiles, going to be digging into uh, check-ins at different bars. Uh, again, we will say, please don't uh, name names um, in public, send them to us. We will forward them to authorities. We will stay on it. Uh, don't dox each other. Be nice to each other. And... That gets us to the weekly distraction. Paul, I am finally having uh, my sort of um, last Taco Bell potatoes meal um, is going to be coming up a little soon. I'm going to order everything that is being um, that is being discontinued and going to have a a very solemn meal. But um, I'm going to let you go first, though, in terms of the distraction this week. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I, my distraction, uh, yeah, it's been a hell of a day, actually. Uh, Cora, as you know, my, my yellow lab is just getting out of emergency surgery. Um, mm -hmm. Cora, who doesn't seem to pay any attention to the typical wildlife that we have around here, such as uh, deer and bunny rabbits, decided to go chase down a bear and uh, the bear turned on her and attacked her and uh, she was injured but she is going she's going to be okay no okay uh, um yes. so Jesus. she's got some stitches to her forehead uh she had a claw that kind of ripped her skin on her side and then she was bit on the tail and the, and the vet is saying the bite to the tail of everything that she had done to her was the most serious because the bite went down to the bone um but she should be okay uh you know but this is this is cora you know and and i think in cora's mind she's she's the protector uh and it's very possible the bear uh had some cubs that was protecting and uh you know can't fault the bear but of course you know concerned about cora at this moment in time um and uh she obviously is going to have to be controlled better to prevent her from running after beasts that can kill her Jeez, I'm so sorry. Uh, did she? Did you see her running after? Her? I wasn't with. I, I wasn't with her. My wife took her out hiking, uh, you know, in a, in an open space, a kind of a known trail area, and uh, there was some rustling. And uh, initially, Cora was under control, and then she just darted um, and tunnel visioned. And then uh, the next time she was seen, she was literally in a fight with this bear. Jeez. But your wife was okay? The bear didn't come near her? No. Uh, everybody, there was uh, three women that were out hiking, and they all start screaming and running away, and then Cora and the, another dog end up following her. You know, so Cora was able to actually oh, walk wow. out out of the, the canyon, um, you know, and, and you know, I, I have a photo of her injury on her side, uh, you know, and, and the vet, was, of course, was concerned that it possibly punctured into her thoracic cavity, you know, maybe into a lung, but it appears that it's more super Superficial and that the skin is just kind of torn, torn and hanging. Uh, but, you uh -huh. know, this it just underscores, you know, Colorado, uh, the wildlife is real here and uh, you have to be, um, you know, head on a swivel at all times. Uh, you know, that actually. So I've been uh, yeah, I've been going back and forth between my place in, in L.A. and the and in Phoenix where Luna is. And I think this could definitely be my distraction because I've been playing. I'm in Phoenix right now. I've been playing with Luna a lot. And she does this this thing that uh, we have this like sort of giant chair that we call the cuddle chair. And it's got three pillows on it. And it looks like something from the 1970s, like a like a UFO type of thing. Hmm. And uh, we used to tell her she's not allowed to. She can stay on the other couches. That's not that couch because it's like uh, it's fabric and things. But. I've noticed every day when I wake up, a pillow is moved. Now, um, there's no hair on the couch at all. I'm, I'm doing a little, a little investigating. There's no hair on the couch. 
but a pillow is moved and there's a little bit of slobber on the corner end of the pillow and it's moved to the to the middle of the couch okay and then i put it back and then the next day rolls around go to sleep wake up it's back again it's to the middle of it and i think this is what she does and this has happened six days straight and i think this is what she does she just goes by and then just moves it just to mess with me yep just to torque you yeah so <laughs> yeah, you sure it. it's luna that's messing with it's you? definitely luna oh you think it's my son it could be my son but i don't think so no you're gonna have i to will get investigate that. that's a good you know what i will have to do a dna test on the saliva to see <laughs> if yeah okay if it's your son i'm hoping he's not moving the pillow with his mouth <laughs> you know what I, to mess with me my son would do that as well so <laughs> okay everyone uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'd really like to get to the bottom of these cases and uh, we're really going to be uh, continue to dig deeper into them. Please um, subscribe. Please leave us a, uh, a review. That would be lovely. And uh, buy some merch. If you're not going out to your bars yet, uh, spend some money on some merch. That would be fun. And follow us on social uh, at Paul Holes, at Paul.Holes, at Billy Jensen on Instagram and Twitter. Now, now, Billy, I know you've been in the social media realm for a long time, and, and you're the one that I blame for getting me into social media because you're the one that convinced me right after that first crime con I was at to, to open up a Twitter account. Um, I'm now, you know, experiencing social media in its, in its fullest, and it appears that I have uh, an individual or individuals that are deciding to uh, impersonate me on Instagram by opening up fake accounts and scraping off photos, you know, that they can find of me online uh, and then starting to contact people uh, in part to see if they can scam them out of money. And I, I did uh, learn about this. I've reported it to Instagram. I've also reported it to some other uh, entities that I won't name right now but i just want everybody to be aware that that is going on it is not me uh, my account on instagram is at paul.holes so uh, yes. you know it's 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 the it's the world of social media yeah so so one of our listeners contacted me and said uh, and sent me a screenshot and the person, whoever was uh, impersonating you, asked her for a favor. She said, what's your favor? And he said he wanted a prepaid card. And she said, oh, no, the real Paul wouldn't ask that. And then he said, OK. And then he said, yes, I wouldn't ask of it if it wasn't if I wasn't in need of it. And then she said, go ask the guy you do your pod with. <laughs> so I so I need, I need to be asking Billy for some money. Exactly. So whenever. Yes. Whenever you are in need, uh, we will open up the uh, the cash box for that. I, I just thought that was a very funny response. Yeah. The deep pockets over there, Billy. <laughs> and until then, keep digging and don't be an irony. Jensen and Holes, The Murder Squad, is produced by Exactly Right Media and Bench Clearing Productions. Senior producer, Polly Katowski. Engineer, Stephen Ray Morris. Music, Tom Bryfogle. Executive producers, Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, Danielle Kramer. <laughs>